righty then, welcome to the True Wealth Radio Show on this, the best Tuesday you've had all week long. Stoked to be here. Dave Littlejohn in studio with... Matt Dixon. And have we got a show for you. Yeah. yeah. You right? know it's weird, David? I just thought of something. So we were in here last week, right? Yes. And we were like, oh, the markets, you know, and we had had, you know, kind of a downturn in things, right? Yeah. And over the last couple of days, we've seen things kind of turn around a little bit. We've had a few good days. And everybody is so shocked. Right? They're like, well, with everything going on in Israel, the market should be down, right? <laughs> Isn't that funny how, how people get these assumptions that it's It's a really single interesting event. to me because when I look at the markets now, I, I, now, just for a minute, all of our listeners were not in on the they investment weren't. committee conversation. Mm -mm. But we had a point blank moment where he said, well, what do you think's happening in the next quarter? Right. Right. And what did I say? He said, well, it probably should move higher, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's only been a week, right? And that does not a trend make. But you, you look at where we were in the cycle where, historically speaking, September is a rough month. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, going into Q4, which is holiday season, right, where numbers have still surprised on the upside for jobs. And there's still been some pretty decent economic strength, but inflation seems to be waning. Now, do I buy all those numbers? Not really. But if I look at the way the market's behaving, it's just at virtually a 10% pullback off a of peak. That's a pretty normal intra-year move within the markets. And so at some point, people start, like institutional investors start to say, okay, well, you know, 10% sale, it's time to start putting our toe back in the water because the danger of missing the market moving is pretty high as well, mm -hmm. right? And so it, it's just there's some mechanical elements at play here where you think, okay, that's pretty far. What else has to go wrong in order to drive the markets down? And my question is ultimately these geopolitical things, which are, I mean, there's some real human rights issues that are like travesties right. or, or human safety and, and human tragedy. But what's the economic impact? Right. I mean, I think when we look at it, the I mean, there's talk that we might not get, you know, more rate hikes for a while. And right. I and that ended up being the bigger mover in the markets than the war. Right. What seems to be the underlying driver in these markets right now is the cost of capital. Absolutely. Right? If there's a theme underneath this market it is the the theme of the punch bowl. Right. And mm -hmm. the punch bowl was everybody's drunk on the Fed stimulus. And then there wasn't stimulus anymore, but then it was low interest rates. And then interest rates went back up, and the market started saying, okay, these are real headwinds. And then the companies that looked attractive were the ones that still had earnings, even in these headwinds. Earnings and some free cash flow. Right. And yeah. so if, if companies had financed their debt at low rates, Apple, Microsoft, mm -hmm. right, strong cash flow, Yep. and then they go through, and they're still growing. Mm-hmm. Then those are all very interesting backdrops. By the way, not recommending these companies. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just giving you no. context here. And there are also really huge weightings in the primary indexes that most people track to represent the air quotes markets. Yeah. Well, some people looked at it almost as a way to escape to some safety, right? Because you got a lot of stocks that maybe were paying dividends, but dividends at say two, three percent. If the bond market is over here offering, you know, U.S. Treasuries around 5%, the dividend stocks kind of looked less attractive, and we saw that across yeah. the boards. And so where did the money flow? We saw it flow into the big tech companies that had a lot of free cash. Yeah. 
It's so you just see the way assets have rotated around. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Tech was also the leader on the way down. Yeah, which meant it looked like it was an attractive sale again. Okay, so uh, now what does that mean? I'm I'm kind of looking over at the screen here, and uh, you know, so S and P 500 is back up just above 43.58. Mm-hmm. Right. Could we see a little bit of a pullback again? 4,200 seemed to be the support line-ish, mm-hmm. really close to that, 4,220. We sniffed there. around it. Right, yeah. and <clears throat> kind of moved back up. That's a pretty good sign that the market's finding a footing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, let's be honest, the market right now is big tech, right? That's right. like as it's big tech goes, so does the rest yeah. of the market. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those who go, well, what does that look like through the end of the quarter? And my suspicion is... It looks okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I telling you the market's going up? I mean, I'm guessing like anybody else. But when I'm saying, what's what does it mean if so? The geopolitics, you know, well, we could chase the geopolitical stuff to a, a really ugly end. You know, it's like, oh, okay, well, Israel's got its back against the wall in some respects. There's some depending on who you talk to. There's there's different connections between. Uh, various other surrounding factions, uh, and as a result, it, you know, between Saudi Arabia and Iran and um, Palestine and the, the various factions that are involved and how they interrelated over time. And this is this is more complex than I really understand. Mm-hmm. But if it ends up escalating to a full blown military engagement that escalates into more. Like multiple countries at war type of scenario. Well, more countries getting engaged, and then you start to get some real hard lines in uh, the supply of energy, right? Mm -hmm. Like oil prices start getting affected, and that starts to have genuine economic consequences. Right. Then, yeah. I I mean, like, could it go down that path? Yes. Has it so far? No. Mm -hmm. Right? And so therein lies kind of the issue is how do you handicap an outcome on this one? And it's tricky, but the markets have seemed to kind of say, well, it's not necessarily going to affect the market leaders all that much, right? AI is going to still continue to expand with or without the war, provided that war does not start blowing up the manufacturing facilities of AI, right? Yeah. And I say manufacturing facilities for the computers that do AI, which, boy, talk about, there's a subject at some point for a different show. The, the new computer technology and how that's evolving. I got to learn more about this. Quantum computing is just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it, the quantum entanglement, this stuff is, you know, we're getting pretty ethereal here in terms of how that operates. And, and we are above my pay grade, but it is fascinating to see the type of extraordinary processing power. Wouldn't it be fun to bring someone in on the show live that mm-hmm. has a really in depth, like, knowledge? Of that space and yeah, and could just could start picking their brain to me like a toddler. Yeah, yeah, so that would be something. That'd uh, be pretty cool. I'm yeah, I'm just kind of learning about the the concepts of you know quantum entanglement's a fascinating theory. You know much about that? No, I really don't. Uh, I'll like Skim radically oversimplify this because it's all I could get like latch onto, but it's the idea that um, electrons or other micro particles like you know atomic particles are connected to each other and the distance in between them doesn't seem to matter. So you could have uh, a particle sent to the other side of the universe and they're still related to each other. And so if one of them changes behavior, the other one changes at the same time, regardless of distance in between. Hmm. 
And that link in the quantum environment is somehow being leveraged to manage much higher order computer processing power. Really? It's it, it, And it, the way it was sort of described to me, and I don't understand this, so it just makes me sound all you know out of touch, is that it's some of the processing power of these computers exists outside of time as we understand it. Hmm. Like they're more capable than we can like well, actually Because the processes unleash. are happening in a quantum environment hmm. where they're not constrained by the same rules of time and space. Really? That, that we're used to utilizing. Interesting. Yes. It, it is truly fascinating. And the type of like processing power is staggering. Things that would have taken uh, current generation computers, you know, a thousand years to crunch on can be done in minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like supercomputing at a level that's not it, it's hard to fathom. Hmm. So uh, at any rate, I still need to learn more. Yeah. It's an opportunity because I'll tell you what one of my things that I think would be fun is, and I'm sort of shopping around for this a little bit to start bringing more guests in on program. We've also, uh, you know, thought about do we open the phone lines back up and, and yeah. take calls and that kind of thing, and and we could. Right. I mean, if that's something that you are interested in, uh, send us an email to info at littlejohnfs.com and let us know. It's like, yeah, we take phone ins or yeah, you can always you can always send questions and we can answer them on the radio. That happens, sure. too. So. But uh, anyway, today's program isn't about quantum computing or Middle Eastern conflict. Or... What? What is it about, David? <laughs> well, it, it started kind of funny. Matt and I were talking about this and I said, you know, what we got to do a show about bad financial advice that sounded good at the time i bet you there's someone listening that's like oh <laughs> uh, yeah. like raising their hand in the background oh, right. i it, i it, got it, trapped at some point it, it's yeah it, it it's it was born out of uh original discussion of hey maybe we should revisit some of the dave ramsey stuff we've talked about before if you don't know dave ramsey that's okay but uh, dave ramsey has a very formulaic process for helping folks to stabilize if they are in debt and sort of out spending their means mm -hmm. and so it's it's really regimented for the person that's in trouble and right? needs those baby steps well and, and i've always and they're literally called baby steps right mm -hmm. and and, and the, the show is like well should we talk about why it works and then we kind of got off the rails going like well I, the temptation sometimes, and this is just because when you're in the field of finance, you you, know, you see this happen. Is well, some folks why why do this, why do they need the baby steps? Because they put themselves in that spot, right? That's and it's a nice like, way of saying it. Because it, they're really behind the power curve and making a lot of bad decisions, and they're compounding right. them. Yeah. And so what the baby steps does is it stops the bleeding, and it does so in a way that you can follow through because it's designed to get you psychological wins so that you see progress fast. Right. But it's, our business isn't really geared towards like helping not. the person in that in that moment where they need the baby steps. It's just not how we're structured. No, we're really built for the grown up steps, the stuff that is coming yeah. as it matures. Uh, but, you know, we've still got us thinking there's a lot of bad advice out there. Right. Or there's Absolutely. a lot of out of context advice that if you do it wrong becomes bad. Mm hmm. And we're going to spend some time today unpacking some of those pieces of information. I don't want to some of this bad advice that sounds good, but I, it's really it, it, it it's, you know, handle with care. Yeah. 
because it may not be good at all. So I know we're getting close to a break, but yeah. can you give the listeners like a cliffhanger? I know we're talking about bad financial advice that sounded good, but give me like something to look forward to. A oh, teaser. Well, What's the good the news is we're going to tell you the what the bad advice sounds like, and then we're going to also talk about how can if if you navigate this right, how could you turn it into the good advice, right? Oh, so okay. here's the stuff that's like, you heard this, and this is where it's going to blow you up, but this maybe gets you on the right track. Okay. Okay. So if you're curious about how do I uh, sidestep financial catastrophe, we're going to start unpacking that right after this break. All right. All right, gang. So stick around, and we'll see you shortly after Radical Profits here for the radio station. Uh, I'm Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. You can catch all of this show if you're getting bits and pieces of it by going and downloading the podcast available tomorrow at littlejohnfs.com. But the best part of the show starts right now. So buckle those seatbelts. It's about to get hot and heavy over here. Okay. Yes. I, I'm officially like, oh, I'm excited to hear what we're going to talk about now. Yeah, we're talking <laughs> about bad financial advice. David, I'm going to throw something out there, and uh, just a broad topic, and I want okay. you to... So I'm giving bad advice? <laughs> no. <laughs> we're going to identify maybe, maybe advice around this that you've heard that sounds good, but it wasn't. Yeah, okay. So David, I'm going to sell you an annuity, and it's gonna be awesome <laughs> okay perfect. Yeah, exactly. that's all you need to there's know. your sales and pitch go. uh okay here's the thing about annuities they tend to be sold on fear mm -hmm. okay and they tend to be sold now are annuities inherently evil no uh, virtually every financial instrument that i've ever seen it can serve a purpose in one way or another it can. Is what you're where trying to say. you run yeah. into issues is some of them are designed to be i think just too expensive well and you always kind of got to be leery if the person that's giving you the advice is getting some type of financial incentive from recommending it right yeah there's there's definitely that component uh that is a difference between suitability and fiduciary obligation right? exactly suitability meaning the recommendation needs to be not harmful, but it, it doesn't have to be in the best interest of the client, and it doesn't have to be in an ongoing basis. So, mm -hmm. hey, it's a moment in time. We had some options. Here's a, here's a really simple example. Oh, there's two annuities, option A and option B. They both largely appear to do the same thing. One of them has a higher commission structure than the other, so the representative sells the higher commission product. Mm -hmm. Okay, Now, they don't have to do a significant amount of deep dive in order to confirm that that is, they don't have to figure out which one is best for the client per se, as long as it's suitable. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, this is going away. There's a lot more fiduciary awareness in the industry. So you've you're seeing, and, and I want to be really clear too that I don't know that there's a ton of predatory practice out there, but there can be. Mm -hmm. So you need to be aware of that. Here's where. I run into issues with annuities, okay? Okay. First of all, the concept, this is an insurance product, okay? They're offered through insurance companies. They can oftentimes sort of look like a certificate of deposit, mm -hmm. but they can also look like mutual funds, right? So variable versus fixed annuities. Sometimes you'll hear them sold something like this. Oh, you can have stock market returns, but they're guaranteed not to lose money. Ooh. Okay? So now you're talking about 
equity indexed products typically. Mm -hmm. Okay. They all have different catches to them, but I want you to understand a the basic catches. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the really high level for pretty much any insurance contract. No company can stay in business if they offer a deal that's too good to be true. Right. And so when we are touching on that subject of bad financial advice that sounded good, the person selling you the annuity might say to you, hey, you can invest this money and we guarantee that you're going to get 4% over, you know, annualized over the next 15 years. Right. And it might sound good at the time, but what is one of the, the gotchas that might be involved in that contract? So... In this case, it sounds a lot like a fixed annuity, mm -hmm. meaning it's going to walk and talk like a CD. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem is if this is not in a retirement plan environment, so some kind of tax deferred environment, that 4% is going to be a pre-tax return. Mm -hmm. And then if you ever want to take the money out, it's going to end up affected by your tax rate because that tax deferral in an insurance product is only going to protect you while you're in an insurance product. If you ever take a distribution out, it's going to be taxed as ordinary income. Keep in mind, ordinary income tax rates are typically higher than long-term capital gains tax rates. Ooh. Okay. So what you're doing is you're taking something and putting it into a tax wrapper and changing the type of tax it's exposed to. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they often have internal operating costs. Now, fixed annuities are much more predictable. Yes, they have operating costs, but they also have a stated rate of return. But you have to understand that that's a gross rate of return typically, not a net after tax return. One of the things that um, would kind of spook me um, in this situation would be, what if I want my money, right? Oftentimes with an annuity contract, if you want your money early before the stated yeah. date, you're going to have to pay something called a surrender fee. Right. Where, okay, I put $100,000 in, and I planned on having it invested for 15 years, but something happened in my life, and now I want that money out. It's been three years, yeah, and it's I been, have to pay you yeah. know, a 6 7% penalty exactly. to pull the money out. And it's, it could be 6 7%. It could be very, very expensive. Right, so now I'm out you know, $7,000. Yeah, I often call this golden handcuffs. That's right? a beautiful you're, example. You're putting right? on a pair of golden handcuffs, and the other thing is once you get into an insurance product, then in order to get the money back out of the insurance product, if it's not in another tax deferral wrapper, mm -hmm. meaning it's not in like a retirement plan, then that transition back out is a taxable event. So you got dinged twice. Well, you, you don't get dinged twice. Well, That's a, the, uh, this is an important concept for our listeners, right? The IRS if you doesn't make you pay tax twice. What no, but between is, the penalty and the tax, now you're getting dinged twice. Well, you're getting dinged in that respect, but yeah. I guess I'm thinking you're not getting taxed twice. No. Right? You paid taxes on the money. If it's after-tax money, right, you paid taxes on it already, but the growth hasn't been taxed yet. Mm -hmm. So when the growth comes out, then you have to pay the taxes. They get you on the way in or they get you on the way out tax-wise. Mm -hmm. But the insurance carrier can charge penalties if you leave early. So that's that golden handcuff clause there. So I think annuities, uh, they're, they're not wholesale evil. There are people out there that have annuities that sell them with income guarantees or other features to them. Again, I'm going to refer back to the idea that if one really breaks apart the expenses, right, what you're paying for in that circumstance, in my opinion, is the ability to say a third party is going to carry the risk of the investments now. Mm -hmm. Okay, So you're saying... 
I don't want to be responsible for managing my own risks. I will pay somebody else to do it, and I'm in an acceptable cost. Right. But I think what people are oftentimes they misunderstand is the design of those products is designed to limit the risk of the insurance company as well. Yeah. And so it's much harder to achieve high rates of return because imagine an insurance company saying, well, we're going to guarantee you a bunch of money, but we're also going to let you have all the upside in the contract. But if the contract's upside down, we have risk exposure. Mm -hmm. Meaning if the contract falls in value because the stock market goes down and your mutual funds drop, and we have to guarantee that we can keep paying you an income, Mm -hmm. they have a lot of risk exposure. So they have to be very careful about how they charge for these guarantees. And so uh, my experience, and I've been tracking these for over 10 years, different types of contracts, uh, and, and I say that cautiously, meaning I've seen these for over, I, don't, I can't tell you, like I watched this last contract for 10 years. I've just seen many developments and iterations of these types of contracts over the last 10, 15 years. And there's a reason that their buildings are really big, right? Like, well, it's just, Insurance is very predictable about mm-hmm. they're they're using their actuarial processes in order to make sure that they are going to end up winning more than they lose. Well, to make sure that they're just not going to lose, right? Yeah. That's by design. Insurance companies are they're very savvy about this. So they're not going to create a product that guarantees you unlimited upside and no downside. Mm-hmm. They are going to create a product that's going to keep you within the guardrails. And they're going to make a little bit of money on top. And so, yeah, yeah, that to me is, it sounded good at the time. And then afterwards, I can't tell you how many customers that we've had that have come to us where they, they had a product like this and we've had to look at it. And then we've seen, oh, you've owned this seven, eight years. And the actual internal rate of return was very negligible. Right. And it became a, a frustration of, well, why did I get this thing? And it's, well, it sounded good at the time. You know, in just full truth and transparency, I mean, yeah, I've been doing this a little over two years now. I've never had someone walk through the door and be happy with their annuity contract. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... And that may have to do with the business that we are in. Sure. And I don't see it all the time, right? And there's not been a huge volume of them, but anyone that I've seen that has one has frankly been disappointed. I will still say they they have very specific roles. You know, if you... They could play, you know, an important no, role for some, role. like for someone who is really, really bad with their money, and they're gonna blow through it all, and they need to preserve it. Maybe I, you put I it in there. And, like, that that to me is, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's like, it, Matt, don't project your hate on annuities. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I'm allowed to. Okay, I'm just going for it today. It's like I, I'm laughing at it a little because no, I mean, so here's a real life case. Okay, you. Uh, we had a, an advanced design product one time where, yes, it's going to sound crazy, but we intentionally purchased universal life insurance, and we used a, fic- or a fixed immediate annuity to pay the premiums because it was funded with a borrowed, like with a lending structure, right? So lending structure funds the policy. You can't put all the money into the life insurance all at once, or you create what's called a modified endowment contract. Your eyes should be rolling back in your head now because everybody's like, what the heck is he talking about? It doesn't matter, right? You just don't want to put all the money into the insurance all at once. It blows up what you were trying to do. So what you did was you guaranteed the payments in the form of an annuity. Hmm. So it would make the premium payments for a set number of years to put the life insurance in place. And the whole thing was done with borrowed money as part of exotic estate planning. It was actually really brilliant as a way to help 
facilitate some estate planning and some asset protection in this case. So mm-hmm. that was a, 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 a truly appropriate use of insurance product. I'm guessing this was for like a really high net worth. It was very person. high yeah. net worth individual yeah. that, that, that really needed to It's kind of one structure. of those one, one-off things where it's right. like, you As don't. As opposed to somebody saying, sure, you know, go this is all buy, the money buy I have. Whole life and yeah. uh, it will, you know, be worth a million dollars when you die. Here's my life savings. I accept $700 a month. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. man, Matt is jaded today. Yeah, Matt is like I, I, I always, I'm always careful because you come on the show and I don't want to like hate on something and then there's a specific use case when somebody goes in and goes, but I thought you hated those. It's like, well, largely I, I don't See, like the way David, they're sold. I'm <laughs> allowed to hate them because you're over here playing devil's advocate and saying, hey, but hey, look, you know, there, there are some instances. I'm over here trying <laughs> to manage our liability, and Matt's like, screw it, I hate annuities. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like whack-a-mole. Stop, Matt. Okay. Well, and on that note, folks, there's a bunch more uh, advice that probably sounded good at the time. It can't be time for a profit break. We're only into one of these, It is already time. Okay, well, there's a lot of other stuff that we hate, so we'll... (laughs) (laughs) Easy now. All right, stick around. When we come back, we'll talk about more stuff that Matt hates, and I will try to uh, (laughs) to do damage control. All right, that and more when we come back. I'm Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dick. And you got true up on News Radio 939 FM at 1240 KQEN. Hey gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show where we are trying to keep Matt in a box from You can't cage me, David. From, from, I'm unleashed. <laughs> from, from buying liability. No, <laughs> uh, where we are doing our best to not make always and never statements, except for things like never be stupid and always be kind. How sure. about that? Yeah. Uh, so good. Or, or even never be stupid. Never be stupid when you shouldn't be. Hey, I gave annu- <laughs> I gave annuities a little bit of a break, right? I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> annuities. You know, if we're honest, uh, it's a tough one uh, for us, just because I- I've seen so many times where they just didn't play out like folks hope. I mean, you could say, well, they definitely protected them. Yeah, they just also protected it against gains. And then I'm over here like, well, did you beat inflation? Yeah, well, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, did did you beat anything? Like, uh, well, my wallet's so, lighter. So I was right. like, oh, okay, well, that mission failed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're, we're very cautious. And you know what? Uh, there are yeah, use cases. It's, it's like- I just... Enough already. That, it's for the person about- who's like, you know, well, I'm not the biggest loser. I'm like, but does that make you a winner? That's how I look at annuities. Uh, how about that? Fair enough. All right. <laughs> I'm, I'm burying this one and we're moving on. You've got, so other, other next topic. <laughs> the <Go> next <laughs> topic. Okay. The theme of the show is bad financial advice that sounded good at the time. And I don't know how to really wrap this up other than to say, Hey David, would you like to buy a whole life insurance policy? You're 30 years old, and it's going to cost you $250 a month for the rest of your life. How much insurance do I get? <laughs> you get $500,000. So of no. Oh, is the <laughs> uh, you know, this one is one of those that it's really interesting. There is again, there's a very niche program that uses um, whole life paid up additions from a. Uh, like a dividend issuing mutual company or something. It's like very. very you just sounded really product. smart, by the way. Okay, <laughs> uh, so it, it goes back like decades ago to a concept that was called infinite banking, and it's the idea that you can store up money inside of an insurance policy, and then you can borrow the money out and utilize it and pay yourself back, and the it will continue to grow 
policy credits internally, and and it grows your money, right? So the idea is that you replace a banking institution by feeding a like you're contract. banking yourself in a way, yeah. It's kind of yeah, banking so, yourself David, or this infinite sounds banking. So good, how could it be bad? Well, I mean, here's the thing: you got to be committed forever. Because once you're into a whole so life policy, so it's kind of like getting a tattoo. Except now you can laser a tattoo off, and you. Oh, well, you can <laughs> get out. You just pay the taxes. Right. Right, and it's a tax time bomb because you've deferred everything, and it's going to be taxed as income if it comes out. Ooh. Right. Yeah. And, so and you the, get a ton of money in this thing, and then it's like, all right, I'm ready to have some money. Well, and yeah. the idea is that it's supposed to go to the next generation tax free, and so uh, it's not that they're about. It's just it's a really long term commitment, and it does not necessarily give a lot of leeway for changes in lifestyle. Look, I've been doing this, for, I'm in my 24th year of practice, right? Mm -hmm. And I have seen tax policy change not less than four times in my career, and you're, like major changes. Are you trying to indicate that you haven't seen taxes get cheaper? No, I actually have. Okay, right? what, what's I, uh, your angle then? So, no, the angle is that policy changes. So trying to have a forever financial strategy mm -hmm. is tricky because the system changes. Ah, there it is. There right? it and is. So yeah. What what I like is pliability and adaptability in a financial plan, mm -hmm. right? And when you when you set something up that's a forever. And here's the other thing, tax deferral is fantastic, mm -hmm. but it's not the end all be all if you end up having to pay taxes right. at a higher rate. You're saying as the market changes, you need to be adaptable, which is actually a really good lead in to another one of these that you know. Well, let me, can I make one last point on? Yeah, this yeah, one? yeah. Right. Yeah. So. The thing about whole life insurance is my experience is the internal rate of return is low, right? Like sure. compared to other investments, you look at it and Historically, say, well, yeah, should it I earn 2 or 3% tax-free? So, well, you know, you can borrow it out against it and pay for it. But, you know, I go, yeah, but it's growing so slowly. Would I have been better off simply putting it in something else, growing it, dealing with the tax ramifications, and just having more, mm -hmm. right? And that's always the answer. It's like, I don't know that the... The tax deferral on a very low rate of return, even if I can borrow against it tax-free, necessarily makes it more attractive. And so the, the numbers have to be very closely scrutinized because, once again, insurance companies do not design these products so that they can financially fail. Mm -hmm. Okay, And so that's the key to this whole thing. The borrowing against it's really novel. But it's it's rarely perfect. When you borrow against it, you typically have to pay interest against it as well. You have internally, especially if it's universal life and not just whole life, you have a rising cost of insurance that you're going to have to be able to afford to continue to pay. So your premiums are basically escalating as you age. Life, your whole life is set earlier, right? But you you pay more. So yeah. there's just it. They're not magic. Okay, they're just not magic. They. Do they have a place? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right? Permanent insurance usually serves two things, right? It's for estate liquidity. That's the primary reason that you you need permanent insurance, right? Mm -hmm. Or like you, you need some kind of generational wealth transfer that you just are looking for, right? So, but but that's life insurance. The primary roles are income replacement or estate liquidity. Just keep that in mind. Define anytime. estate liquidity and exactly what you mean by that. Estate liquidity, like in the state of Oregon, if you have more than a million dollars worth of stuff, they mm -hmm. tax you. Right. If you're married, you can double that to two million. But if you have more than two million dollars worth so of stuff, you basically want ten percent of your stuff. What if all over that real two estate? million. Yeah. Yeah. If all you own is real estate and you die with ten million dollars worth of real estate, you got eight million dollars of exposure. That's going to be eight hundred thousand dollars in taxes. 
So that then means you, the heirs are going to have to sell the real estate to pay the tax unless you or, provide a way to pay it. Right. So you could have a million dollar whole life insurance policy where you're just like, you know what, I'm just going to pay this thing every month. And then when I pass, that money is going to then be able to bail out the estate. Right. So not 100% evil. No, are, no, no. Yeah. Again, all of these instruments continue to exist because there are real use cases. Exactly. It's just, you know, I've, I've said this before. There are different types of practitioners out there. You find somebody that's more interested in insurance sales than in problem solving, then the old expression is when the only thing you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to sell you on insurance because that's what they sell. Right. Okay. And I think that what we need to do is solve people's financial problems, and the instrument that's appropriate is what you use. Mm -hmm. Okay, So I want you to use the right tool in the bag, not the only tool in the bag. Right. There is a time and a place for an annuity. There's a time and a place for whole life insurance. Correct. But and we've now waived, you know, we've officially satisfied compliance. Yay. Hey, I did it, David. <laughs> look. I started ruffle feathers and then I smoothed them out. Oh, look at that guy. I love it. I know. But All right. you gave a great segue, right? You yeah. talked about how with these whole life insurance policies that you, you the main thing is you want to be adaptable to a changing market, right? And we've seen that be ever true lately where bond yields have gone through the roof. People have kind of shuffled up their holdings a little bit because, you know, years past bonds weren't nearly as attractive as they are today. Um, what do you say to the person, though, whose quote is, you know, just make sure you have stocks and bonds. I j just roll with the 60-40 portfolio. It's good enough. Spread it out. Yeah. So I like to point this out. I have this phrase that I use uh, uh, often. I said, beware of the question within the question. Mm -hmm. Right. So you say, hey, you know, 60, 40 portfolio should be fine. Right. Yeah. And I would say, well, 60, 40 of what? First of all, but it's well, stocks yeah. to bonds. Right. Yeah. And we could, of course, parse that down to well, which stocks and which bonds. But I think underneath all of this is this other question of why was a 60, 40 portfolio kind of the target, like well, the, yeah. the icon that everyone. Yeah. Why did that ever come on? up in the first place? And it has to do with concepts in portfolio construction that we've really been working with since the 1950s, mm -hmm. right? Back in the 1950s, uh, the, the real sort of OG of portfolio design, as we understand it, using what's known as, ironically, modern portfolio theory that's now 70-something years old, right, mm -hmm. was Harry Markowitz, right? This is the guy that came up with the concept known as mean variance optimization, okay? Very fancy term. But what it really means is, hey, let's look at all these different investments that we own and let's look at the past performance of upside and downside. And then let's figure out the, the ideal mix of those investments so that we get the most upside and downside possible without taking any more risk than we need to. Sure. So it was an academic theory, but it's largely played out and it largely resulted in the more risk you want, the more stocks you own and the less risk you want, the more bonds you own. Okay. But in reality, what the theory posits is that you want to have different types of assets that do not tightly correlate with each other. Right. You want to have some diversification. But in... beyond diversification, like Home Depot and Lowe's are diversified, mm -hmm. but they're highly correlated. Like right. They're really similar stores. So if you have Home Depot and a government bond, mm -hmm. much less well, correlation. And I think where you're kind of leading into here is... Stocks and bonds can be a lot 
more highly correlated than one might think on the surface, right? Well, especially lately, we've that's seen where all I was going to go with this increase in correlation. Well, think about it. If we jack the rates way up, if you're in this continuous bond fund, right? Well, that's going to get really negatively affected if you know rates are way higher. No one's going to want your stuff at a really, really low rate that you're currently holding. And with that, you know, you see the stocks start to crawl lower. It's like, okay, you're getting dinged on both sides. Now, maybe that's not the case for you because your bonds had a fixed maturity date and it was short term. So, yeah, when it comes to portfolio design, mm -hmm. the point here is. You want you, stuff that doesn't necessarily yeah, walk and talk with the other stuff. You want correlation yeah. amongst a diversified basket of assets. Mm-hmm. And what fixed income has historically done was provided stability. Okay? Right. But it doesn't mean that it's zero variability, right? And so with interest rates changing a lot, we've seen a lot of variability recently. And so that has negatively affected the bond side of the portfolio and the stocks have been equally volatile. And then the problem was we looked at this the other day and we found something like the top 20 stocks of the S&P 500. Like if you looked at, I think, 2021 and you removed the top 20 stocks out of the S&P 500, I think it was a negative return for it the year. It was negative like 12 points. It was, it was unbelievable to see that like... Yeah, the whole index could own... be up 30% and you take out the top 10 big yeah, companies it was just staggering and then to it's see like how much the, the return was, was a handful 12. of super mega caps yep right so basically if you did not own the mega cap companies in your strategy you underperformed so and if you own bonds yeah. at the same time you really underperformed so those portfolios that were really de-risked and maybe didn't have a lot of the big tech holdings in those portfolios just yeah, and here's just, another sad example. Everybody that ran out and bought two percent CDs today crushed. you can get five. And if you're, yeah. st- I mean, you, maybe you're just now getting out of them and you can roll them over. But yeah, you you really locked up. You locked in dollars, but you didn't protect yourself from inflation. Well, same so, thing. That's another thing. You know, we look at mortgage companies, right? The ones that are issuing the loans. I mean, they're hurting. If you issued a thirty-year loan at two point something percent, you're really wishing you hadn't. Because right now it's over eight percent. Yeah, it's the opportunity is pretty significant. The delta between mm-hmm. the new and the old. Ooh, I like right? the way you say that. Delta, <laughs> sort of a Trump-esque, right? Yeah. Um, bottom line, buried in that, the question within the question is: Hey, I want a, a diversified portfolio. How do I and, even go and, about that? Yeah. And within that is a uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding of why. And like, how do you actually design mm-hmm. that? Um, it's we didn't even touch the surface on alternatives, right? There's so many no, different ways no. to go about it. And so, uh, I mean, ultimately, the the using the tools that we have, you know, mean variance optimization, if that's really what we're going to use, so this modern mm-hmm. portfolio theory concept. And there's people that are sort of starting to drift away from that uh, as an idea, although not far. I mean, it's still a, a, a core tenant in investment management, but. Uh, you, you look at that and you realize, okay, but if we have high correlation across asset classes, then we didn't historically have that. Mm-hmm. Then we need to come up with new ways to create lower correlation. And so we've seen the sort of introduction now over the last, really the last 10 years it's gained in popularity, but factor-based investing as opposed to the more traditional market cap. Well, cap is a factor, but like factor-based is getting more um uh, specific and granular you're seeing a whole lot of different etfs that are created ways to reintroduce low correlation back into the strategy so it's not as simple as sure just give me the old 60 40 it just takes more 
art to it now. David, I have a game I want to play. Does it come before or after the break? It's going to come after the break. Okay. I've got six more of these. We've only made it through three. Okay, so we're going to do 45... six in six minutes? Yes. Love it. Let's take a break. When we come back, six and six. Yes. Okay, we're going to do this. Uh, or we're going to die trying. Yep. All right, stick around. This is Dave Little John. And Matt Dixon. We got True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, guys, welcome back to the Home Stretch, the True Wealth Radio Show, where if you're just joining us, grab the podcast. We're about to go for a ride. Today is the advice that sounded good at the time, but turned out not to be. And we have like four minutes left to try to jam out the rest. We've done like three so far. Yeah, and we got and, six more to go. So okay. you got to be on your toes, David. So this is rapid fire. Hey, David, I got some advice for you. Hit Buy me. as much houses you can afford okay this is just false and that's easy this this really is advice that came from like the 1970s and 80s crowd where real estate just went up and up and up and up and up and you know we've definitely seen 2008 proves real estate can go down too so buy the amount of house that you should afford not as much as you can mm -hmm. afford hey david your kids all want to be doctors you've got three kids College is expensive, so quit putting money in your retirement account and save for your kid's college fund. Okay, it's a terrible idea. Put your own mask on first, then put the mask on for your kids. If you do not, you can't borrow for retirement, but mm -hmm. you can borrow for education. And if they're right. going to be doctors, they should be able to afford to pay it back. Remember, education is an investment in yourself. Mm -hmm. David, real estate never goes down, so your goal should just to be to invest in real estate. It never goes down. Okay. Refer to the previous question about like buy as much house as you can afford. Yep. Real estate is an asset class that has risks like everything else. So don't uh, forget 2008. <laughs> and don't forget 2008. Okay. Um, David, believe in Dave Ramsey's quote here never use a credit card, it's evil. Okay. This to me, credit cards are a lot like guns. Mm -hmm. The problem is not the instrument, the problem is the user. Mm -hmm. Okay, the credit card in and of itself is not inherently evil. If you pay your credit card off every month, then in full, in, in, full. in full, then yep. you will not pay interest. And keep in mind that credit cards have better consumer protection mm -hmm. in the event that the card is compromised. So True. it's not that it's evil, but you can make a clown out of yourself if you don't use it properly. So tread carefully. And if you cannot trust yourself, don't get a credit card. Hey, I trust myself. And guess what? I pay it in full every month, and I get a ton of points and a lot of free money to spend on Amazon. So it works well okay. for me. But you go. if you got a spending problem, maybe not for you. Uh, follow your passion, David, uh, whatever that is, and go into business and just follow your dreams. Okay. So terrible advice because it lacks enough context. Passion is super important if you want to stick with something. Mm -hmm. But if you're passionate about something that's not profitable out of the gate, then you can passionately starve yourself. Perfect. So keep that in mind before you just blindly and emotionally jump into something. You got to look at the logic too. Okay. Hey, David, you should invest in this. It's making money, and it truly is. It's making money. So that means it's a good investment. Okay. Again, I'm lacking context here, but just making money compared to what? Exactly. You've always got opportunity costs here. Mm -hmm. And so is that really the best place to put it? Or exactly. are you, you know, because, hey, it's making 1%, but inflation's running at 4 It's actually not making money. But, David, I can just make it up on volume. Okay. Only if there's profits, mm, right? Yes. You cannot make up losses on volume. So make sure that if that's the case, that it actually has to scale properly in the business. Hey, right? guess if what? If you don't know what that means, uh, we got a whole other show on scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I want to congratulate you. You made it through all six. Nailed it. And we, yeah, right? <laughs> and it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, I know that there's others out there. You know, we've had everything from, here's some other ones on the list real quick. What if someone feels like they're being possibly fed bad advice? Okay, so the first thing is you can always pump the brakes and slow down. Yes, you don't have to commit to something yeah, on the spot. Don't, don't get yourself into a position where, in fact, this is a sales technique. It's often called the takeaway close or it's called the, uh, uh, the urgency close. Yeah, yeah, you can only get this offer within the right. next 48 like, hours. Like this is the timeshare saying, like, if you don't buy now, you'll never be able to buy again at this price. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can come back tomorrow and get the same That's a way deal. to freak people out and get them to take action. It, yeah. It's a psychology uh, sales technique that's designed to create urgency. So just pump the brakes, and if you need to, get help. Like Matt, how might they call us if well, they don't have somebody in their life that they like, trust, and uh, you can with? call us at five four one three seven five zero eight nine eight, or you can email us at info at littlejohnfs.com or chat us on there. However you want to get a hold of us, it's Little John Financial. Exactly. All right. Well, we are out of time for now. So thank you, as always, for tuning in. Uh, until next time, I'm Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 939 FM and 1240 KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Littlejohn Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.